Chapter Six of Parnassus on Wheels. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. Chapter Six. I had a curious feeling of bewilderment when I woke the next morning. The bare room with the red and blue rag carpet and green china toilet set was utterly strange. In the hall outside, I heard a clock strike. Heavens! I thought, I've overslept myself nearly two hours. What on earth will Andrew do for breakfast? And then, as I ran to close the window, I saw the blue Parnassus with its startling red letters standing in the yard. Instantly I remembered, and discreetly peeping from behind the window shade, I saw that the professor, armed with a tin of paint, was blotting out his own name on the side of the van, evidently intending to substitute mine. That was something I had not thought of. However, I might as well make the best of it. I dressed promptly, repacked my bag, and hurried downstairs for breakfast. The long table was nearly empty, but one or two men, sitting at the other end, eyed me curiously. Through the window I could see my name in large red letters, growing on the side of the van, as the professor diligently wielded his brush. And when I had finished my coffee and beans and bacon, I noticed with some amusement that the professor had painted out the line about Shakespeare, Charles Lamb, and so on, and had substituted new lettering. The sign now read, H. McGill's Traveling Parnassus, Good Books for Sale, Cookbooks a Specialty, Inquire Within. Evidently he distrusted my familiarity with the classics. I paid my bill at the desk, and was careful also to pay the charge for putting up the horse and van overnight. Then I strolled into the stable-yard, where I found Mr. Mifflin regarding his handiwork with satisfaction. He had freshened up all the red lettering which shone brightly in the morning sun. "'Good morning,' I said. He returned it. "'There,' he cried, "'Parnassus is really yours. All the world lies before you.' and I've got some more money for you. I sold some books last night. I persuaded the hotel-keeper to buy several volumes of O. Henry for his smoking-room shelf, and I sold the Waldorf cookbook to the cook. My, wasn't her coffee awful? I hope the cookbook will better it. He handed me two limp bills and a handful of small change. I took it gravely and put it in my purse. This was really not bad, more than ten dollars in less than twenty-four hours. Parnassus seems to be a gold mine, I said. Which way do you think you'll go? he asked. Well, as I know you want to get to Port Vigor, I might just as well give you a lift that way, I answered. Good! I was hoping you'd say that. They tell me the stage for Port Vigor doesn't leave till noon, and I think it would kill me to hang around here all morning with no books to sell. Once I get on the train, I'll be all right. Bach was tied up in a corner of the yard under the side door of the hotel. I went over to release him while the professor was putting Peg into harness. As I stooped to unfasten the chain from his collar, I heard someone talking through the telephone. The hotel lobby was just over my head, and the window was open. What did you say? McGill? Yes, sir registered here last night. She's here now. I didn't wait to hear more. Unfastening Bach, I hurried to tell Mifflin. His eyes sparkled. The sage is evidently on our spore, he chuckled. 
Well, let's be off. I don't see what he can do even if he overhauls us. The clerk was calling me from the window. Miss McGill, your brother's on the wire and asks to speak to you. Tell him I'm busy, I retorted, and climbed onto the seat. It was not a diplomatic reply, I'm afraid, but I was too exhilarated by the keen morning and the spirit of adventure to stop to think of a better answer. Mifflin clucked to Peg, and off we went. The road from Shelby to Port Vigor runs across the broad hill slopes that trend toward the south, and below, on our left, the river lay glittering in the valley. It was a perfect landscape. The woods were all bronze and gold, the clouds were snowy white, and seemed like heavenly washing hung out to air. The sun was warm and swam gloriously in an arc of superb blue. My heart was uplifted indeed. For the first time, I think, I knew how Andrew feels on those vagabond trips of his. Why had all this been hidden from me before? Why had the transcendent mystery of baking bread blinded me so long to the mysteries of sun and sky and wind in the trees? We passed a white farmhouse close to the road. By the gate sat the farmer on a log whittling a stick and smoking his pipe. Through the kitchen window I could see a woman blacking the stove. I wanted to cry out, "'Oh, silly woman, leave your stove, your pots and pans and chores, even if only for a day. Come out and see the sun in the sky and the river in the distance.' The farmer looked blankly at Parnassus as we passed, and then I remembered my mission as a distributor of literature." Mifflin was sitting, with one foot on his bulging portmanteau, watching the treetops rocking in the cool wind. He seemed to be far away in a morning muse. I threw down the reins and accosted the farmer. "'Good morning, friend.' "'Morning to you, ma'am,' he said firmly. "'I'm selling books,' I said. "'I wonder if there isn't something you need.' "'Thanks, lady,' he said. "'But I bought a mort of books last year. "'I don't believe I'll ever read em this side Jordan. "'A whole set of funeral orations what an agent left on me at a dollar a month. "'I could qualify as earnest mourner at any deathbed merrymaking now, I reckon. "'You need some books to teach you how to live, not how to die,' I said. "'How about your wife? Wouldn't she enjoy a good book? "'How about some fairy tales for the children?' "'Bless me,' he said. "'I ain't got a wife. "'I never was a daring man, "'and I guess I'll confine my melancholy pleasures "'to them funeral orators for some time yet.' "'Well, now, hold on a minute,' I exclaimed. "'I've got just the thing for you.' "'I had been looking over the shelves with some care "'and remembered seeing a copy of Reveries of a Bachelor. "'I clambered down, raised the flap of the van, it gave me a quiet thrill to do it myself for the first time, and hunted out the book. I looked inside the cover and saw the letters N.M. in Mifflin's neat hand. "'Here you are,' I said. "'I'll sell you that for thirty-five cents.' "'Thank you kindly, ma'am,' he said courteously. "'But honestly, I wouldn't know what to do with it. "'I am working through a government report on scab-worm and fungus,' and I sandwich in a little of them funeral speeches with it, and honestly that's about all the reading I figure on. 
That in the Port Vigor Clarion. I saw that he really meant it, so I climbed back on the seat. I would have liked to talk to the woman in the kitchen who was peering out of the window in amazement, but I decided it would be better to jog on and not waste time. The farmer and I exchanged friendly salutes, and Parnassus rumbled on. The morning was so lovely that I did not feel talkative, and as the professor seemed pensive I said nothing. But as Peg plodded slowly up a gentle slope, he suddenly pulled a book out of his pocket and began to read aloud. I was watching the river and did not turn around, but listened carefully. Rolling cloud, volleying wind, and wheeling sun, the blue tabernacle of sky, the circling of the seasons, the sparkling multitude of the stars, all these are surely part of one rhythmic, mystic whole. Everywhere, as we go about our small business, we must discern the fingerprints of the gigantic plan, the orderly and inexorable routine, with neither beginning nor end, in which death is but a preface to another birth, and birth the certain forerunner of another death. We human beings are as powerless to conceive the motive, or the moral, of it all, as the dog is powerless to understand the reasoning in his master's mind. He sees the master's acts, benevolent or malevolent, and wags his tail. But the master's acts are always inscrutable to him, and so with us. And therefore, brethren, let us take the road with a light heart. Let us praise the bronze of the leaves and the crash of the surf, while we have eyes to see and ears to hear. An honest amazement at the unspeakable beauties of the world is a comely posture for the scholar. Let us all be scholars under Mother Nature's eye. How do you like that? he asked. A little heavy, but very good, I said. There's nothing in it about the transcendent mystery of baking bread. He looked rather blank. Do you know who wrote it? he asked. I made a valiant effort to summon some of my governessly recollections of literature. I give it up, I said feebly. Is it Carlyle? That is by Andrew McGill, he said, one of his cosmic passages which are now beginning to be reprinted in school books. The blighter writes well. I began to be uneasy lest I should be put through a literary catechism, so I said nothing, but roused Peg into an amble. To tell the truth, I was more curious to hear the professor talk about his own book than about Andrew's. I had always carefully refrained from reading Andrew's stuff, as I thought it rather dull. As for me, said the professor, I have no facility at the grand style. I have always suffered from the feeling that it's better to read a good book than to write a poor one, and I've done so much mixed reading in my time that my mind is full of echoes and voices of better men. But that book I'm worrying about now really deserves to be written, I think, for it has a message of its own. He gazed almost wistfully across the sunny valley. In the distance I caught a glint of the sound. The professor's faded tweed cap was slanted over one ear, and his stubby little beard shone bright red in the sun. I kept a sympathetic silence. He seemed pleased to have someone to talk to about his precious book. "'The world is full of great writers about literature,' he said, 
but they're all selfish and aristocratic. Addison, Lamb, Hazlitt, Emerson, Lowell, take any one you choose. They all conceive the love of books as a rare and perfect mystery for the few, a thing of the secluded study where they can sit alone at night with a candle and a cigar and a glass of port on the table and a spaniel on the hearthrug. What I say is, who has ever gone out into high roads and hedges to bring literature home to the plain man? To bring it home to his business and bosom, as someone says. The farther into the country you go, the fewer and worse books you find. I've spent several years joggling around with this citadel of crime, and by the bones of Ben Ezra, I don't think I've ever found a really good book, except the Bible, at a farmhouse yet, unless I put it there myself. The Mandarins of Culture. What do they do to teach the common folk to read? It's no good writing down lists of books for farmers and compiling five-foot shelves. You've got to go out and visit the people yourself. Take the books to them. Talk to the teachers and bully the editors of country newspapers and farm magazines and tell the children stories. And then, little by little, you begin to get good books circulating in the veins of the nation. It's a great work, mind you. It's like carrying the Holy Grail to some of these way-back farmhouses. And I wish there were a thousand Parnassuses instead of this one. I'd never give it up if it weren't for my book. But I want to write about my ideas, in the hope of stirring other folks up too. I don't suppose there's a publisher in the country will take it. Try Mr. Decameron, I said. He's always been very nice to Andrew. Think what it would mean, he cried, waving an eloquent hand, if some rich man would start a fund to equip a hundred or so wagons like this to go huckstering literature around through the rural districts. It would pay, too, once you got started. Yes, by the bones of Webster. I went to a meeting of booksellers once at some hotel in New York and told them about my scheme. They laughed at me but I've had more fun toting books around in this Parnassus than I could have had in fifty years sitting in a bookstore, or teaching school, or preaching. Life's full of savor when you go creaking along the road like this. Look at today, with the sun and the air and the silver clouds. Best of all, though, I love the rainy days. I used to pull up alongside the road, throw a rubber blanket over Peg and Bach, and I would curl up in the bunk and smoke and read. I used to read aloud to Bach. We went through Midshipman Easy together, and a good deal of Shakespeare. He's a very bookish dog. We've seen some queer experiences in this Parnassus. The hill road from Shelby to Port Vigor is a lonely one, as most of the farmhouses lie down in the valley. If I had known better, we might have taken the longer and more populous way, but, as a matter of fact, I was enjoying the wide view and the solitary road lying white in the sunshine. We jogged along very pleasantly. Once more we stopped at a house where Mifflin pleaded for a chance to exercise his art. I was much amused when he succeeded in selling a copy of Grimm's Fairy Tales to a shrewish spinster, on the plea that she would enjoy reading the stories to her nephews and nieces who were coming to visit her. 
My, he chuckled, as he gave me the dingy quarter he had extracted. There's nothing in that book as grim as she is. A little farther on we halted by a roadside spring to give Peg a drink, and I suggested lunch. I had laid in some bread and cheese in Shelby, and with this and some jam we made excellent sandwiches. As we were sitting by the fence, the motor stage trundled past on its way to Port Vigor. A little distance down the road it halted, and then went on again. I saw a familiar figure walking back toward us. "'Now I'm in for it,' I said to the professor. "'Here's Andrew.'" End of chapter 6